Kaiser Cast episode 21. Today we have multiple guests. It's going to be Matt Nelson and Jason Schwer. Uh, Matt is our sales rep for all of our spray equipment, and that's actually the name of the company, is spray equipment that he works for. And then Jason is a GAMA representative, tactical rep from GAMA. Um, we use GAMA equipment um, for all of our powder coating stuff. And I always call it GEMA, um, but they let us know in the episode that it's it should be GAMA, as how it's typically said. Um, that's actually a Switzerland-based company. But Chloe is also here with me today. How's your day going, Chloe? It's going well. I thought I would mix things up on you today. Um, and instead of doing our normal opening back and forth, I have a series of very common questions that we get from the general public that I feel like we're getting more and more the longer I work for Kaiser. So I figured we'd go ahead and knock some of those out today. All right. Sounds good. All right. So first things first, um, a lot of people want to know why you can't just mix powder coating colors together. Um, because it's, it's, so the reason why they're asking that is because usually you can go to a paint store and they can mix up whatever color they want. You know, they have a base and then they just tint it all up and then you get whatever color that comes out, whether it's at a like hardware store or paint store or whatever. Powder coating doesn't work that way. Um, it actually gets made at a manufacturing facility and in order to get that fine powder, the, the actual material that most powders are the common powders are a polyester um and so that's like actually a plastic and so that all gets put together and pigment gets put in and gets run through an extruder and then it cools into kind of like all these like paint chips and then they grind it up and that makes a powder and so if you just try to mix two powder colors together like let's say red and blue to make purple when they go into so and let's say you spray it on right over top of each other and you think when they when it gels in the oven that it's gonna those pigments are gonna like mesh together and like create a new color it can't quite happen there because when it when the heat hits the powder in the oven it's actually starting to um cure the powder itself so it's not actually taking the different the red and blue and mixing and melting the red and blue together to be purple it's just taking the red and the blue and just like placing it in place making it a, a, no longer powder but it's kind of solid so then it's just the two colors aren't really together they're just on top of each other and so it doesn't really um create a new color so that's why we can't mix colors together at our facility to make whatever color you want and so if the color that you want isn't on the shelf and you like bring us in like a sample like match this sample then that has to be sent off to the lab and they literally have to make a a very custom batch of powder just to match that sample so that it gets really expensive That makes sense. So the next question is kind of a, a two-pronged question, both about clear coats. Um, question A is, does everything we powder coat require a clear coat? And question B is, if I really like the look of my metal part, can I just slap a clear coat on it and leave it at that? Okay, so as far as powder coating is concerned, 
most don't need a clear coat. Uh, I don't recommend it. Um, I just don't see the purpose of it. So as long as you're using a good exterior durable powder coating, it should not need a clear over the top for common colors. There are certain colors that are that the manufacturer will say like, hey, this doesn't hold up well to wear and tear. doesn't hold up well outside because of usually that's a odd colors or kind of shiny metallic colors to where they can't build the protection in that they need into that coating. And so then those the manufacturer will tell you like you should clear over top of this um, and that will that will make sure that it's ha, has a long life. So there are some powders that specified out that way. But like just to say I have a good example of this. So we powder coat a lot of um, ag parts. Um, so typically like a, what would be like a John Deere green or an ag green. And when we started working with a couple companies, um, a few years ago, they were getting it done somewhere else. And they specified to me that they wanted it to be the green and then clear. And I was like, why we don't need it. That else that's going to do is add cost. And if something gets messed up when you clear it and it doesn't look right, there's no fixing that. There's no like, oh, we're just going to sand it off and shoot it again. No, you're going to blast off this 20 foot long, 3000 pound piece. Like that just doesn't make any sense. And so the reason why that they were wanting that is because they were having problems with uh, the green fading, chalking and fading. And so in that particular case, the, the green powder that was getting used was just not formulated to be a good long lasting powder outside. And so then you, if you put a clear an, over top of a powder that isn't the best out of the box, it usually will prolong its life a little. But I was just like, well, we're just going to use a really good powder to begin with and we don't need to clear it. So then we don't have that extra cost. Um, so that's the first part of the question. So no, most powders don't need a clear coat. And then I always say no. Um, it's not impossible. I just don't like to do it because there's a lot of things that can go wrong. So in terms of powder coating, we got to cure it out with heat. So what the metal looks like after it's been blasted or even as just a raw piece of metal, when it gets heat on it, then it doesn't look the same anymore. And if we're clearing it with a clear powder, we still have to put heat into it to cure it. And now the look that they thought it was gonna be, it doesn't look that way anymore because the metal changed because we had to put so much heat into it. Um, so that's one reason why I like to avoid it. Uh, second reason is if you like the way the metal looks exactly as it is, then we can't pre-treat it because that'll change the way it looks also. Um, and if we don't pre-treat it, now we're, we're not getting it clean. We're, we're, we're not, we're, so we're gonna sacrifice um, that we have some greases and oils on there that can bubble through the coating. We're also not gonna get as good of adhesion because we're not getting any kind of etching. Um, so now we're really giving you a pretty poor finish that's probably gonna chip and flake off. And then um, a third reason is that, like let's say it's a blasted or just a raw piece of metal, that is always gonna probably continue to rust and oxidize underneath the coating over time. Um, the coating is there to kind of protect the substrate, but 
stuff's happening underneath, right? The coatings aren't going to last forever. That's why eventually paint starts to chip and flake off after a long period of time. So when you have clear, you can look, see through to the substrate and see what's happening right away. Um, and so you probably will start to see some rusting happening and the customers don't like to see that, right? So that's usually why I try to shy away from clear. There's a lot of um, options for specialized powder colors that um, powder manufacturers have in brochures. We don't necessarily stock them at Kaiser because they're not common for us to spray. But they, those colors are, are formulated to look pretty similar to raw steel. So if someone has that request, we'll usually pull out some some chip, sample chips and show them like, well, we could get these and this would actually be um, an actual powder coating and it would hold up better and it would allow us to pre-treat before so you would get a lot better longevity. Um, but then there's going to be some extra cost because we don't even we don't have that on our shelf. We got to order that special powder in. So this next one is one that I think you're tired of answering, but it keeps coming back up. So let's just do it again. Um, the question that we get probably more than any other is, can you refinish my chrome wheels? So my answer to that is always no, but there's going to be people out there that would answer yes and call me an idiot for saying no. Um, but I guess code at your own risk or get it done at your own risk from our experience, if you just try to directly powder coat over Chrome, Chrome is um, a, how do I want to put it? Um, it's, it's a plating that's over top of the, your steel wheel, let's say. So it's um, a very hard, durable finish. So powder coating doesn't like to stick to that very well because you don't have any type of uh, mechanical or physical adhesion there, nothing to grab onto. Um, and it, you don't, you can't really pre-treat it well. You don't, don't have, uh, at least standard chemicals typically aren't strong enough to etch into that chrome to give you something that the powder can bite into and hold on. So we don't like to powder coat directly over chrome because of that, because it just starts to flake off. Chips really easy. You do a set of wheels and then the tires get put on and it's already flaking off around the edges when they put it on the tire machine to get the tires on. And so like obviously that's going to frustrate a customer if they just got their wheels done it's already flaking off they don't even have them on the car yet uh and then so it's like okay well can you just blast it all off and get back to a steel wheel and you can um sometimes most of the time it's hard to blast all of the chrome off because again it's like a plating that's fused in with the wheel itself and so you're you're black you know you're you're blasting metal away, right? So it'd be like bringing a regular steel wheel into me and say, it blasts off a 32nd of an inch of material off this steel wheel. It's like, okay, we can do that, but it's gonna, we're going to be sitting in one spot for 30 minutes, you know, and doing a spot that's like a, a two inch diameter. And then you want us to go around the whole wheel to do that. So it just is not cost effective. And like sometimes chrome will be starting to flake and chip off and that's why someone wants to get it blasted. It's usually a pretty localized area and then it's just stuck like like a plating should be on the rest of the wheel. So it's pretty much impossible to get it off. And so I always say, no, we can't blast them then because I'm not even going to give you a quote because you might as well just go buy brand new wheels. It doesn't make any sense to pay us to blast it off. 
Yeah, I think I tell people that probably two, three times a week on average. Yeah. The um, one the one thing about that question, and I don't know the best way to help educate people, but a lot of people don't understand the difference between like a, a polished aluminum wheel that's shiny and looks like chrome, but it's not, you know, and then a, a steel wheel that's actually chromed, you know, so that's something that, I usually don't investigate into anymore. If they say it's chrome, then I just take it, say that it's, I believe them, and say, no, we can't do it. And if they say it's polished aluminum, I take their word for it and quote it as an aluminum wheel. But polished aluminum in a in a chrome wheel, I, I can tell the difference just straight up looking at it. Um, so we may need to do some education or do some pictures or do a video or something to show our customers the difference because um, there is a difference. And, like, you could easily blast some powder coat a polished aluminum wheel but you can't do that with a chrome steel wheel will the magnet test work if people are in doubt that's a good really good point yeah yes it should work because yeah. aluminum is not magnetic right okay and then my final faq for you today is why can't you just disassemble that for me yeah <laughs> because we are going to charge you too much. <laughs> That's why. Uh, are we <laughs> are we capable of disassembling stuff? Yes, we are. Um, do we have time to do it? Absolutely not. As most people know, um, our lead times are way too high again. And it's just because we don't have enough time to get the work done. So we don't want to add any extra processes besides blasting and coding. We also, usually when, you're dis when we're being asked to disassemble, it's an old piece. So usually as you take it apart, things break um, or you can't get it apart because it's all rusted together and you have to get grinders and torches out to cut it apart. And we don't want to damage something or ruin something for a customer. And then, uh, of course, if you take it apart, if we take it apart, then we have to put it back together because we'd be the only ones that really know how it goes back together. And uh, usually if you're getting something blasted and powder coated, you're not going to reuse the fasteners like the bolts and nuts. And you want new of those typically because um, like it's not easy to just like blast and powder coat old rusty bolts. You might as well just buy new. And so we just don't like to get involved in that. Um, so that's why we always say, no, we, we can't disassemble. We can't repair. Um we really just want to focus on what we're good at, which is blasting and coatings. And we don't want to want to dabble in anything else because my experience is we just end up frustrating our customers, whether it be it takes us longer, which is already ta is taking us a ridiculously long time um, because we're just so busy and shorthanded. Um, so either it takes us too long or we damage it not intentionally, it just happens. The customer would accidentally damage it themselves when they took it apart. But, you know, when we do it, then there's somewhere to point the finger. And then um, the third thing is, is when we go to, like, charge for our time to do it, you know, people fall over. Um, and we're charging the same rate per hour that we would as if we were blasting or coating because that's what we need to charge, um, even though we're not actually using our equipment at the time like we could be using our equipment on someone else's stuff so like we're going to charge you the same either way and you know usually when you go to disassemble something it takes 10 times longer than it should so you're 
three hours deep into a disassembling a lawn chair. And it's like, you know, we need to charge for that. Otherwise, what was the point of doing it? Um, and it just, it just gets out of hand really, really quick. And then our customers just end up being mad. So that's why we shy away from disassembling now. So I, we just pose it now as, no, we're not capable of doing that. We can't do that. We don't have the tools to do that, which most people see right through. And they're like, obviously, you guys know how to do this. And obviously, you have the tools. It's just our nice way of saying, like, we just don't want to. It's just not going to work. It's not Kaser blasting coding and disassembly. Right. Yeah. That's better, really, that's better suited for, like, a fabrication shop. Because if you want to go to the, all the effort of disassembling something because usually it's not that they're asking us to disassemble something because there's like non-metal parts in it which obviously has to be done because it'll melt in the oven usually they just want it like everything 100 percent blasted and coated on like a lawn chair from 1975 which is fine but like if it's that old and we're disassembling it that far there's probably some miscellaneous welding and cutting and grinding and new tubing that needs to be added and that's just not what we do so that's better suited for like a, a small fabrication and welding shop to kind of get it all ready to be blasted and coated so there you go we will discuss all of these in more detail at some point on social media in our continuing attempt to educate customers i do want to talk about what i fixed this week Oh, yeah, let's hear it. So today was like filter change day. I finally got around to changing out all the cartridge filters in the powder booth, which needed to be done like six months ago. I usually do it once a year, but it got away from me. Um, so I got all that done today. So that's finally like something that I checked off my list. I wanted to do that over win winter break, um, but it took way too long on all the wash bay maintenance. So. Got that done today. So Wills will be happy. This now it like because the, the spray booth has a real big fan that runs it, but when the those all the filters get clogged up in there, it really kind of starts to bog it down. The airflow is not as good and it starts to, it's quieter. And so like it sounds like a jet taking off now when you start the booth up because the it's brand new filters, so it has a lot of airflow again. That'll put him in a good mood on Monday morning. Yeah. That's great. Uh, do you have any social media tip this week? Um, find yourself a 22-year-old to run your TikTok account. <laughs> she is doing That's good. That's my tip. Yeah, is doing, doing really, really, really good on TikTok. And I think it's just like, just post more, you know? Yeah. Yep. You can't have our 22-year-old, but go find your own. <laughs> yeah, but your, I mean, your TikTok posts are doing good too. So like, give yourself a little bit of credit. I don't know. There's something about having someone young doing young media. My gosh, I sound so old. <laughs> I'm just so since I don't do it day to day, like I'm just curious. Why? Why is your stance on TikTok that it's still young people are better at it? Because even because this is interesting. So before you answer, even Abby N, who's younger than us says that her sister who's like in high school or just graduated can do it better than her i just don't under i i disagree 
I don't know. I'm not in the platform as much as you guys, but I just I don't understand why everybody still thinks that this is for like uh, middle schoolers. TikTok. Yeah, and it, it really isn't for middle schoolers anymore, right? Like TikTok is is crawling with millennials like me and even even people older than me. There's a lot of content creators who are in their 50s and 60s that I follow and I think they do a great job. And I'm not saying by any means that the medium is not for everyone because it is for everyone, but uh you know, I don't know, something about the short form video and this was true when Vine was in existence as well. I think it requires a certain quickness that humans tend to lose oh, as we age. Okay. Um, there's a sense of humor that really works um, that I think I'm already out of touch with. There's just like a fresh perspective that um, that I'm aware that I don't have. And so having Abby, you know, around has good. really helped yeah. yeah, it's just because you're so old. That's why. Yeah, <laughs> that's why. <laughs> yes. Chloe over here with her gray hair just can't keep up with TikTok. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we'll get into our interview now with uh, Matt and Jason. All right, on KaiserCast episode 21 today, we have two guests at the same time. Uh, Matt Nelson, who is my sales rep for Spray Equipment, and Jason Schwer. Uh, I hope I said that right. Um, he works for Gama. Um, basically, we buy all of our powder coating equipment through Spray Equipment, so I deal with Matt quite a bit. Uh, but Matt uses uh, Jason as a resource of information and his connection with the big company, Gama. So thanks for joining us. Guys, Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. Thank you. And Jason, how are you? Been better. Getting over a little sickness, but uh, it's like Matt said, happy to be here on the cast with you guys. Yeah, thanks for uh, joining us. Um, this one will be a little unique because we got a couple people. I think we'll try to just get your guys' background a little bit, and Chloe will start with that. And if anybody has anything, just interject and play off of one another and We'll see how it goes. Sounds like a plan. Great. So, uh, Matt, since we we know you better than Jason at this point, I thought I'd start with you. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and uh, the company you work for? Yeah, absolutely. So, like uh, Jay said, I'm, I'm your guys' sales rep. Uh, technically, I'm a territory manager, so I have multiple accounts that I work with. Um, throughout Nebraska, and I also cover uh, some portions of northern Kansas and northern Missouri, but um, I've been in the industry uh, almost 10 years total, uh, six of those with spray equipment. I actually just had my six-year anniversary last week, and then uh, I worked for about three years for a distributor in Omaha selling industrial coatings prior to coming to work for spray equipment. So, um what spray equipment does, and I, I must emphasize spray equipment and service center is our full name. And we always try to make sure we include the service center because we always tell people service is a big part of what we do. And that's why we make it part of our name. Um, we always want to make sure we're not just selling you something, but we're there to support it and service it after the fact. Um, but anyway, spray equipment's a, an equipment distributor. So we, we supply equipment to end users 
and uh, the company, we're based out of Wichita, Kansas. We have 10 branches throughout the Midwest. Um, one of those, we actually have a branch in Mexico now. Um, and we, you know, we work with anyone who's doing any kind of painting or finishing, mostly liquid paint and powder coating like you guys. Um, and we support everything on their, on their finish lines, you know, from their pre-treatment process to the application process to if they have a curing process and their material handling as well, as far as if they have a conveyor. Um, so, you know, we sell automatics guns, we sell automatic uh, booths, uh, we sell reciprocators, we sell washers, we sell blasters. Um, we just, like I said, it's the whole gamut. Anything that anybody might ever need for their finishing line, spray equipment can be a one-stop one shop for them. And I mean, I could go on all day as far as all the, the different technologies and um, different types of equipment we sell, but um, for, for what we're talking about here today, mostly powder coating, um, you know, if anybody is ever into powder coating now or looking for a new powder coating line in the future, um, you know, that, that's, that's what we specialize in. And so the main brand that you have for powder coating equipment is Gamma, correct? Correct. And that's yep. where Jason comes in? Yep, that's that's exactly where Jason comes in. He's a huge resource for me daily because I have a lot of my customer base is powder coaters. Um, a lot of them are, are job shops or you know contract painters like what you guys do, but we also work a lot directly with manufacturers. You know, people building the parts and coating them on the spot. And Jason and I, I mean, we 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 speak almost daily, um, and we see each other quite frequently as well. Okay, have has he ever been with you when he came to Kaiser? I don't think so. No, we 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 were going to once. We kind of had it planned out, and I don't remember. I think it was a COVID issue. Yeah, <laughs> surprise, surprise, right? Um, along with about half of my meetings that get canceled these days because of uh, <laughs> somebody's sick, or I'm sick, or my kids are sick, or something. So, um, nope, you have not had the pleasure of meeting him yet, but you, I'm sure, will very soon if uh, the world ever opens back up. <laughs> I'm sure it will. Yeah. So Jason, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and where you fit into the industry. So I've been in the industry for about 15 years now. I was on a distributor. I'm not going to mention that company name. Me and Matt were competitors. Um, I was there for about 13 years, and then I just switched over to GAMA about two years ago. But I was also a rep for GAMA there, so I'm very familiar with it. And I just took a liking to powder more than I did liquid and all this other stuff that Matt sells. So to me, I think powder is where the future is going. So that's kind of why I just took a liking to it and wanted to push powder 100% of the time. Um, and so that's is interesting. Can you talk more about that and why you think that's the direction? Um, the reason I think it's going powder is just because of all the green um, efficiencies you have towards powder. You don't have VOCs on it. You know, you can reclaim your respray powder and respray it where liquid, once it, once it hits the floor, it's, it's done. It's gone. You're not getting that back. So there's a lot of benefits to powder that you don't have with liquid. It's a much bigger investment up front, but there's a lot bigger paybacks on the powder side. Yeah, and like Jason said, it is just environmentally, it's kind of the way the world is going, much more friendly. 
uh, on the environment. Like like Jason said, you're not emitting all those VOCs um, into the atmosphere like you are with liquid paint, which is another benefit in itself, the powder coating, uh, because the, the booths that you're spraying the stuff in, you don't have to exhaust all that air to the outside, which isn't only good for the environment, it's also good for the company because you're not having to replace the air that you're sucking out of the building because there's a cost to that as well. You have to have makeup air and you have to have an air makeup unit and uh, it all just adds to the cost savings that are behind powder coating. Absolutely. So with how many years have you been working with Gamma, Jason? Uh, two years now. Okay. Did you work in before that you were just a sales rep for an equipment company? So is that where you got introduced into powder because you were selling powder equipment? At your previous yeah. job? Okay. I repped Gama there for the 13 years I was there. Okay. All right. So with dealing with and actually working at Gama now, they're a worldwide company, correct? That is correct. So what is that like to be able to have that huge resource of information? Is it is it available to you where you have just unlimited resources, essentially, when you're trying to figure out a, a problem? Absolutely. We've got all those resources, but even though we're such a big global company, it's the way I look at it is we're still kind of ran like a small company. Anybody can talk to anybody. You're not really scared of going to somebody above you or above your boss. I mean, we all work with each other. So what is, what's it like with, they're, they're not based in the U.S., are they? We have a, a branch in Indianapolis, Indiana. That's our U.S. headquarters, but our manufacturing is out of Switzerland. Okay. And so is there a difference between powder coating and like a glaring difference between powder coating in the U S and in, in Europe or like, do we do things differently or is it pretty much the same? Um, there are some differences. I mean, everything is pretty much what we're getting over here in the U S the UK has already been doing it for a couple of years. Okay. We get the old technology, but the main difference that I see over in the UK, what they do is they hot coat a lot of their parts, which it's got its pros and its cons to it. Uh, the biggest con to it is you get uh, irregularly on your mill thickness on it because if you got that part coming out that's 200 degrees and you're putting powder on it, you're going to just build up a lot of that powder rate on that spot. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to be able to keep that consistency on it. So if you get too heavy, you're going to get run and sag, and now you got to sandblast it or strip it. Is there a particular so, reason why they favor that over there? I I don't know that reason why they do or don't. Because okay. to me, my opinion, if you're going to ca- coat something hot, then what do you need electrostatics for? Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, I mean, how common is that in the U.S.? Um, you'll see it a lot in some of these job shops where they they just don't know the correct settings to go to or they just don't have a, a decent quality piece of equipment where they can't adjust their voltage and microamps. So the only way for them to get into those hard-to-reach Faraday areas, they warm the part up to shoot powder in there. So they just kind of cheat to get the powder where they want it to go. Where on our guns, we just say, no, coat it cold and just adjust your microamps or your voltage to get the powder where you want it. Yeah, and we've only ever used Gamma guns at Kaiser, and so I we don't know anything different. I don't. I think we might have 
try, I might have like tested a Nordson once, but for the most part, like we have a ton of our own pre-programmed settings now because we've been we do so many different odd things, but we do it over and over again. But we really never have a a huge problem getting something coded. Like if it's the first time that you see a weird geometry, you may have to play around with settings. But it seems like you know the it's forget the equipment is good enough and forgiving enough that we can get it dialed in and pretty much get everything coded how we need to. In my experience, when you're doing that hot, when you're heating the part up, the area I've seen a lot that a lot in is uh, when you're coating piping, and that's done, you know, a lot of times with uh, with an automatic gun or multiple automatic guns directed right at the pipe, and that pipe is is heated up before it's put through the the small booth that it goes through. So as it goes through the booth, it's extremely hot and it's it's turning at the same time. And I think the main benefit there is just your transfer efficiency. Since since the process and the application is so repeatable, um, you're only spraying basically one thing that's the same size, the same shape, and the same place at all times. You're just getting maximum transfer efficiency by directing that part at or the gun at the part that's always in the same place and it's extremely hot. So it basically just it, it, it melts right onto the pipe and then it comes out and they put it through a, a cooling process where it cools it right back down immediately. So that's one place, at least here in the US, where where I've seen that kind of process used. Um, that seems to be the main way they do it, but most places aren't doing it that way. Like Jason said, they're they're coating it cold. Yeah. Or ambient, I should say. If they're if they're coating it hot, like you said on those pipes, Matt, um, typically it's it's because they're trying to achieve like 12 or 15 mils worth on that. So they need that heat to get that powder to start building up on there quicker. You can do it with just coating it cold. But you're going to get a lot more back ionization on it because you're just overloading that part with all that voltage coming out of the gun. So to kind of take a step back, I'm curious how you each got your start in the finishing industry and at what point you first crossed paths. So for me, um, the reason I got into the industry, in all honesty, is because it's the industry my dad's been in his whole life. Uh, my dad has worked for spray equipment doing the same thing that I do. He's a territory manager just like myself. Um, like I said, I had my six-year anniversary last week. He had his 30-year anniversary with spray equipment two weeks ago. Wow, that's a long so, time. Yeah. That's, yeah I'm that. only 29 years old. That's longer than I've been alive. Yeah, I bet, he'd be, <laughs> I bet that would make him good to hear that. <laughs> but anyhow. Um, so that, in all honesty, that's the reason uh, that I've gotten into that. And I actually have uh, some other family members that are in the industry as well. But uh, if it hadn't been for those people, it's probably not an industry I just would have stumbled into. A lot of people say, I've been told a lot, once you're in the finishing industry, you never get out of it. Um, and, you know, that's been the case for some people in my family and so far the case for me too. I mean, I don't see myself going anywhere. Um, I enjoy what I do. and um i just uh i've done things before this and i certainly enjoy this a heck of a lot more so family that's how i got into it so i remember when i was when we were first dealing with spray equipment i was actually dealing with your dad mike and i thought that he retired when you started but he just went to a different territory <laughs> he probably would want people to think <laughs> okay no no he he's just kind of slowly been taking a step back and i've taken over some of his accounts and, and portions of his territory. So okay. 
as he's kind of trying to work his way into retirement, I'm still working my way in. So okay. that's kind of a transition type thing more than anything. And spray equipment offer or not offers. Spray equipment operates as a family owned small business because that's what we've been in our 53 years that we've been in existence. It's been very, very, very family oriented. We actually have a lot of father, son, or uh, cousins or aunts and uncles or whatever. There's just a lot of family that works within this business. So what me and my dad have, that kind of relationship is, is, isn't unique to our company, which is what I think makes us pretty cool as a, as a company as a whole. Definitely. So mine was pretty similar to Matt's. I got into a family business, um, started when I was about 17, got into shipping and receiving and then started doing some repairs and and got into inside sales, outside sales, and took off from there. So when you say family business, was it your mom and dad had a business, or you you went and worked where it, they were working? It was uh, my grandparents started the business, and now my uncle runs it. Okay. And my dad still works there, but um, they're all in the same fishing industry. And just like Matt said, once you get into this industry, you're not getting out. You might move around job to job, but you're still in the same industry. So when you it's guys, just there's, I was just going to say, there's so much that goes into learning the industry and, and getting good at it. I mean, there's just so many aspects of it. There's so many um, variables that, that go into the work that we do, the work that you do, the work that, that we do, even selling the equipment that you just build up all this knowledge, and, you know, you become more and more valuable as an employee. And there's not a lot of people in this industry that, last those first few years and the ones that do they just get so good at it that they're so valuable that uh you know you don't really ever get out of it we've talked to a couple other like uh like actual powder or liquid sales reps on here in past episodes and it seems like most of the guys that are in powder now kind of started in liquid or did a lot of stuff in liquid first and then just ended up transitioning into powder is that the case for both of you or or did you kind of like Matt I know you set at spray equipment you, you sell a lot of different things but when you got in was it like mostly liquid first and then powder or mostly powder or, or how did that uh, for me it's always been uh, very close to a 50 50 split um you know when I started I, I started with a group of uh, established accounts that we already had uh, but I've also grown. And as I've grown, I've really seen more of my new customers are are probably a little bit heavier on powder than liquid. And a lot of them do both. But I would say, kind of to Jason's point earlier, powder is the future. It's the way the world is going for the same reasons we talked about earlier. So right now, for me and for spray equipment, it's it's a pretty even split. But you know, in five, 10, 20 years from now, I think it's going to be, you're going to see a lot more companies um, going to powder and going away from liquid for, for, for all the reasons that we mentioned earlier. What about for you, Jason? What do you, were you, did you start in liquid, then go to powder? Yes. I just, I didn't really care for liquid. There's too many different variables to it. And I just couldn't wrap my head around them. <laughs> it's like, I thought I knew the solution for a customer because I did it for somebody else and it was totally wrong. I'm sure Matt can kind of vouch on some of those different variables for all the different types of liquid coatings out there. 
There's not oh, yeah. one project that you're really going to do the same. I mean, powder is pretty similar for the most part. Um, it just came more naturally to me. So that's why I took a liking to it. I mean, anytime I had a powder opportunity, I genuinely got excited. I couldn't wait to go do that call. Liquid, it was, I got to do this call tomorrow. I don't want to go do it. Yeah. Now, not to mention the two applications, uh, you know, powder, you can blow that stuff right off you. Not so much on liquid. You ruin a lot of clothes. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <liquid paint>. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Go through a bunch of steel toes boots on those paint all over you. So at Kaiser, we do both liquid and powder. We, we, lean heavily towards powder um the only time that we liquid paint is if um it won't fit in our 30 foot long oven or if it's like spec to be liquid um but even like sometimes i'll just even shy away from quoting some liquid projects that are hard specced that way a couple of the things that i see that 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 i like would i want to do powder but i feel uncomfortable doing it and that like most people would just be like, no, I, it needs to be liquid. It's a lot of like priming of things. So like steel, like structural steel for buildings where they just need like a shop primer on it, let's say. Or if we're blasting um, an old car body because someone's doing a restoration and then they're going to take it to a, like an auto body shop to get painted, then they some people will ask us to prime it first so it doesn't rust. Do you guys see with like as powder continues to grow and really becomes like the primary thing that everybody thinks about when we're talking about painting, do you see that we would be powder coating as the shop primer for big steel jobs or powder coating primer for car bodies that then can be taken to a body shop and, and finish painted? Um, I don't know about the body shops yet, but I know on the architectural steel coatings, um, they're actually now rewriting some of their specs to be powder coated. So yes, it is definitely changing where it's always been heavily liquid coatings for those architectural coatings. And now they're actually putting in that powder spec in there so people can quote them doing, doing powder on them. So I think that's a huge move. And it, you're just going to keep seeing it grow. Yeah. What have you seen, it's Matt? It's just so interesting to me that this, you know, powder is the future and everything. But I feel like people outside of the finishing industry don't really know it exists. You know what I mean? Like, there's no formalized educational track um, that people can, like, go to technical college and learn powder coding. And so how in the world, first of all, do you do you sh- do you gain your own knowledge? And then how do you go about enlightening your customers about what's possible? Matt? That's a good question. (laughs) You know, um, I would agree with what you said. I think the general public as a whole, everybody knows, everybody knows what liquid painting is. And I think that's because liquid painting, there's a lot more applications outside of industrial and commercial applications. Everybody knows and has seen people um, painting a house outside with an airlift sprayer. And uh, everybody knows that their cars get painted you know, in a body shop with a liquid gun. Um, most people, unless you have the opportunity to be in manufacturing facilities, they don't even know what powder coating is. The, the, the average person that doesn't work in the industry, it doesn't work in a manufacturing plant. Why that is, um, I don't know. I guess it's just not what we're exposed to as much. 
Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. The biggest thing that I see is the reason that the automotive companies really won't go to powder is one, most of the cars are being made out of all those plastics now. And I'm not saying you can't powder coat plastic, but obviously you can't put a plastic bumper in the oven at 400 degrees or else you're just going to melt that thing down. Um, but typically you can get a much better finish with liquid than you will with powder. You're not going to get that tier one automotive shine to it. Like when you go to a, go get a brand new Corvette and it's got that nice smooth finish. Not saying you can't get that with powder, but it's hard to repeat that on every single one of those cars coming out. And most of the people that are getting their stuff powder coated, it's just for industrial structures or signs or stuff that's going to be outside where people aren't going to go up, you know, stare at it under a microphone or, you know, a microscope and just pick at all the flaws on it. They're going to see it from a couple hundred feet away or 50 feet away and say, yep, that looks good. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, that makes sense. It's the chapstick, not the lipstick. That's how someone described it last week on KaiserCast. <laughs> we'll have to remember um, that. Yeah, so what are some, um, if you had to give us an example of when and how the two of you collaborate at work, uh, what would that look like? So I, I get Jason involved a lot. Um, you know, if we're going into a new potential customer and we need to do a little bit of a, uh, evaluating the customer's needs and do a little bit of exploratory research to see, you know, what they're doing now, um, what their current process is, what materials they're using, what equipment they're using, what they're trying to accomplish. You know, Jason's got a very keen eye for those things as a product expert. And so I, I, I always like to bring him along on that first or second call um, to get the big picture. And then we kind of put our heads together and collaborate on, you know, what we see being a benefit or how do we add value to that customer? And then, you know, whatever our recommendations will be after that point, he can also help me design that system and he can help me quote it. Um, another thing I bring him in a lot on our product demonstrations, you know, like on simple demos for, uh, you know, just a, like a box unit. You know, if they've never if they've never sprayed powder before, if they've maybe had a different brand of a gun and they want to see how a game of gun compares to their current brand and uh, what extra benefits it might have, how it might outperform their current gun. Um, I like to bring Jason along on demonstrations. Sometimes when a customer is having issues that maybe I'm not seeing. I'm, I'm not fully seeing what the solution might be and I need some help. He's always there. I can give him a call and it doesn't matter if I need him to drive 30 minutes or eight hours. He's always willing to hop in his car. And I mean, it's pretty unbelievable how, how mobile he can be and, and uh, how helpful he is for us on the drop of a hat. So, um, and then awesome. one other thing, yeah, one other thing, um, again, whether it's a simple system or a very complicated one that we might be installing that's full of game equipment, He's always willing to come along and help out with the installation. I mean, that that's not that's not his job, but he understands it and he knows how to do it. He knows how to get his hands on it and get dirty, get down and dirty with it. So um, we use him for a resource in that way too, because uh, it's just always nice having an extra set of hands, extra set of eyes, and another perspective. So, Jason, how did you learn to do all that? Uh, just time. <laughs> no, I just uh, when I was on the. The distributor that I worked for before, you know, not only when you go out and sell the stuff, but when you got to install all of it, 
we always like to go in and see how the install goes. So whenever we're helping quote that installation package, we kind of understand what's going into it. We see the troubles that the install guys are having, the hiccups or the problems that they run into, so we can understand it more, but also just, you know, kind of getting down and dirty, like Matt said, and tightening bolts and moving stuff around. I mean, just don't want to have all my bread in one basket. So when you guys are talking about designing and installing a system, is that typically an auto, has some sort of automated line function or do you do setups like Kaiser where just all batch? So we got a batch spray booth, batch oven, batch wash bay. Do you do that or is it mostly like an actual automated conveyor line? Uh, it's both, but I would say batch systems so like what you guys have, that's that's pretty common. That's that's the most common. Um, but you know, we do get involved in conveyorized systems, whether they're powered conveyor or they're just a manual push pull conveyor. Um, some of the power and freeze systems where it gets even more complicated and more expensive. Um, so really, I mean, it, it just comes down to seeing what they're doing and seeing what their goals are and what kind of throughput they need, what size are their parts, how many, you know, how many they need to get through, what are their current challenges and everybody there's 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 not a lot of solutions that come out of a box mostly everything is custom in this industry um once you get into a full system um you know the booth sizes the airflow you know is it a manual gun is it an automatic gun does it need reciprocators you know how much automation do does the customer want or how much automation could they benefit from and what's their budget you know uh, automation can get pretty expensive depending on what uh, what extent you go to. So um, again, that's where I like to bring Jason in and and we just we look at the big picture and oftentimes we'll give a good better best recommendation. You know our, our, our proposal might be three proposals in one where we say, you know here's your most economical version, um, the simplest way of doing things, but you could step up to this next, uh, version that's going to cost more money and here's going to be the added benefits from it maybe you add a little bit of automation and then maybe you step to a best case scenario where it could be a fully automated line and um and again obviously the the prices vary accordingly and it all depends on what the budget of that particular company is and what their appetite is so so when i think a gamma i just since we use that as our a, bo a box feed sprayer so that's the actual you know the gun that we're using to spray powder that's what I think in my mind what Gamma sells, but I'm pretty sure, and I, I don't, I've never like had a quote or stuff, but there's a lot more equipment that they sell, right? So like pretty much the anything to do with spray and powder, if you go like automated route, the booth and everything could come from Gamma. Is that correct? Correct. Now, so pretty much a manual gun is like our entry point into powder coating. Okay. And then you step up towards your automation and stuff is there what like you batch with the box is there yeah, batch booths do... i sell yes we do offer some batch booths okay so we we've got a couple different styles on them um you know whether you want a walk-in booth uh just a standalone where it passes by a conveyor or just a full-blown 
uh, cartridge inline booths, or then we've even got some quick color change booths where you can have, you know, 20, 30 automatic guns in there spraying and do a color change in roughly eight to 10 minutes. What were you saying, Matt? I mean, just to touch on what Jason was saying, they, they have what you guys do with the box unit, the box gun, that is, that's their most uh, popular unit, I would say. That's the thing they're, they're selling many 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 of those across the country every single day um but there's other you know companies putting in large automated lines um i i can't say any you know names probably here but i mean multi-million dollar systems with multiple booths whether they're top coat booths primer booths with you know 40 50 guns inside the booth on reciprocators and and game has some very cool technology now called dynamic contouring where the guns will actually not only will they reciprocate up and down in and out but the in and out uh process can be done independently the guns independently of one another based on the geometry of the part so if there's a recess in a part and there's 10 guns in line on a reciprocator and there's a recess in the part two of those guns will will go all the way in to to get that deep pocket of the part where the other guns will stay back and it's all just done by lasers and photo eyes and so on and so forth to to actually map out the geometry of the part as it enters into the booth so i mean they have some very complex equipment um that's it's quite cool actually that's fascinating i was going to ask how the technology has evolved in your time there but it sounds like um Sounds like lasers were a big step forward. Jason, you want to touch on that? Yep. So the lasers are dynamic contouring. I think that came out in 2018, 2019. Um, we just came out with our second generation on it. Uh, like Matt said, that is definitely the top-notch line that you can have. That is, is pretty much as automatic as you can get besides having a robot. So as that part goes through this little light curtain or scanner like matt said it's scanning that part 100 percent, just shooting it with pretty much a million lasers going up and down reading it in like a 2d 3d dimensional drawing as that part's entering so it knows the geometry of that part so those guns automatically know where to go and there's no programming on it you don't have to go in there and tell the gun hey i need you to move in two feet then back out you know it, it does all that automatically which gives you consistency and, and yeah the, the big benefit of it is you don't have a lot of manual reinforcement and since this whole COVID thing has taught everybody um, you couldn't get workers to show up so now everybody is gearing towards automation now and how can they you know if another pandemic happens again and they can't get workers to show up but they still got to run production how can they do that well it's automation so this is just one step that we can help them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. No, I was going to ask who was installing this kind of equipment, and it sounds like basically everyone. Um, no, it's pretty new technology. I mean, it's it, it's been out for a couple of years, but nobody's really been wanting to do it. And now there's probably a handful that are going in this year. Um, I like Matt said. I don't think I can really tell you the company names where I know they're installed at. I don't think they want me to share their name, but it's definitely sure. making its headway out there. That makes sense. 
Um, wow. Okay. So as you look forward to the future of automation, I mean, like, is there, what's in the works now that you see maybe, you know, coming in the next 10, 20 years? That's a lot of technology changes over 10, 20 years. Well, what I, I mean, I can't speak uh, definitively to what the technologies are, but I can tell you one thing, whatever they are or will be, Game will be the one that comes out with them. Um, they are the leader in research and development. I mean, Game is the one that comes out with all the new technology. Everybody else just tries to catch up. Um, at least that's my experience, and that's kind of what I've learned. Um, obviously, I'm partial to Gamma. That goes without saying, but I'm not Gamma. I don't work for Gamma. Um, I just work with Gamma. So, um, but I do know that, that that's what they're known for. They're the ones that have the big budgets for R&D, and they spend the money to come out with the new latest and greatest technology. Once they come out with it, everybody else tries to figure out what they did and how to replicate it. It's always the way it's been, so I don't see that part of it changing. <laughs> Nope, I agree with that's you on that one. Yeah, yeah, well, that's what it was meant to be. <laughs> no, um, what I was going to say is um, thank you, Matt, on that. That's that's the way I, I mean, like you said, I'm kind of partial as I work for Gamma, but um, do you guys have any of the OptiFlex pros there at yeah, your shop? Do. Yeah. So you guys know how we've got that 135 degree angle pump and we've got the 110 KV, the power boost, all that. Um, we've got the Bluetooth on that controller. These are all things that we came out with. And when you patent the product, you have to tell the whole world how you did it. We did not do that on this one because we said, you know what? You guys figure it out. We don't like to come out with anything new unless we've got some major new features that we just got to share with the world. Well, and what some of the competition does when they come out with that new version and they obsolete the old version, not only do they obsolete it, but they stop su supporting the spare parts on it. So it's just kind of a way to force you into buying the new thing because you can't get parts for the old thing. Where even when Gamma does come out with the new thing, which they only do when there's a real benefit to it, they keep supporting the old thing for what is, what is it, Jason? I don't know if you have a set time frame on the years, but it's it's several years after the they've stopped making the 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 older generation. So um, they're not doing it just to kind of push you into the corner to keep buying and upgrading new equipment all the time. Yeah, and I can vouch yeah. for that because we got the pros. Um, I think it was last year we got them, and we haven't like fully switched over to using both those as like our primary sprayers. Um, so we still are ordering spare parts for the the older version, the the one that's not pro, and we're cap we're able to get all those parts still, which is great. And you would be able to get the parts for the gun previous to that, and I think the gun previous to that is that correct, Jason? Yeah, we've only um, discontinued one gun, and that was actually I think November of last year. Um, that was our Easy Select. Um, that one was really not a good designed by us um, and that was also had, what 20 years ago or something like that uh, i think that one came out in the 2000s but we've got a gun before that the pg1 gun that we still offer all spare parts to and that one came out i think in the 90s maybe the late 80s wow. so so like like matt said we don't like to back you in a corner and say yep we just continue this now you gotta buy the new gun so when did gamma first um like start supplying powder coating equipment. Oh, I knew you were going to ask me that. 
I should know a little bit more about my company. I know we were, I think it was under, we were under ITW before, and I think we spun off of Ransburg, which they kind of invented the electrostatic over in Switzerland. Um, I want to say in like the 60s. And then they brought that technology over here in the 70s, and really nobody kind of got into it because it was new, and everybody said, no, we're just going to stay with liquid. But then about the 80s, the 90s, that's when powder coating started getting bigger, and then it keeps growing and growing. It's a long time. So what percentage of your day would you say you're – either quoting new products and services to customers versus like troubleshooting their current setup? Oh. Um, it's a pretty even split, I would say. And, and a lot of times those two things kind of go hand in hand because while you're evaluating a potential problem, um, a lot of times the solution to that is recommending new product as well. So, um, I mean, as far as dealing with with problems or, or issues and trying to troubleshoot things, that's pretty much what you're doing constantly because um, if someone's calling you, generally it's because they're having some kind of issue, whether it's their equipment isn't working right or they don't have enough equipment, uh, they're trying to get more throughput. Everything, I don't know, maybe this doesn't, maybe this isn't exactly accurate, but everything kind of stems from some sort of problem in one way, shape or form. So, I mean, and, and for us, we always have a lot of balls in the air at the same time, you know, whether you're working on a, a little small issue for one customer or a huge project or a huge new system for somebody else, you generally always have dozens and dozens of, of balls in the air at the same time. And there's a lot of people involved to accomplish that goal, whether it's a small goal or it's a big goal. And, you know, for me, I spend a lot of time just coordinating with people, you know, on the customer side, I'm, I might be coordinating with a painter, um, with a paint line manager, with one of their engineers, with the owner, the purchasing agent, you know, there's a lot of people you'll be in communication with all at the same time, just, just at your customer. Then you have your own people you're trying to keep, um, keep the ball moving forward too, whether that's my own customer service people on the inside to help support me my service techs or the billing department or shipping department shipping's a huge thing i mean as you as you guys know if you, if you can't get the part to a customer then what good are you and uh uh you know and and right now with all the challenges we all face um with covid and supply chain i mean shipping is is just one one sliver of that so that can be a headache day to day but then aside from dealing with your customers and dealing with your own people or my own people within spray equipment, then I deal a lot with our vendors, you know, reps like Jason primarily. And then sometimes I need to reach out to the customer service department at GAMA if it's um, some simple question about pricing or part numbers or availability or lead times. And then sometimes we work directly with GAMA's engineering team as well. So, um, but it's all, it's all to accomplish that goal to solve the problem for that company. Are you guys having a hard time keeping up with the demand in terms of, do you have equipment available to sell right away? Or did you, or you have long lead times because you have a hard time actually just getting the parts and pieces to, to put the equipment together. 
Nope. We have a great team that does all of our ordering for our stocks here in, in the U.S., and we've stayed ahead. And um, the main thing, I believe, is our distribution, like uh, spray equipment. They stock, you know, some of these manual units. They stock all the spare parts and the consumables. Uh, I mean, typically, the only stuff that you're going to have a lead time on that we're not going to have sitting on the shelf is, like, if we're talking about an automatic boost system. I mean, because that's it's pretty much a hundred percent custom engineered to whatever we're doing that for that customer. So I don't have just a booth sitting on the shelf that I can have to you in a week or two. That makes sense. Well, that's good. There's, I mean, that's pretty rare to hear out of all the people that we've talked to recently. That's, that's, that's good news that you guys have had good luck with that and have a good team making sure all that stuff's ready to ship right off the shelves. Yep. It is rare because you know, uh, spray equipment has many, many, many vendors that we work with. You know, we're we're distributors, so we obviously buy the equipment from the vendor or the manufacturer, and then we resell it to the end user. And Gama is one of the only ones that we don't have issues with. Um, everything we need from them, aside from like like a new system or something, like Jason was saying. I mean, if 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 we don't have a box unit in stock, and we always do, but if we didn't, we could have one within two or three days um their game has a stockpile of them and same thing with all the, the parts that support that so um they're probably the only vendor i can say that about right now um which is which is pretty impressive because e- even uh i won't again i won't name names but some of our more reliable vendors that have always been so reliable in the past they've even slipped as of recently and some of the stuff that used to be um you know available always not so much anymore i mean it's it it, it's it makes major challenges um to the day-to-day for for us and for our customers so but not with gamer so hopefully it stays that way (laughs) yep so matt i guess this is mostly a question for you although i'm sure jason encounters this as well when when a customer calls you um, with a problem, does it tend to fall into predictable categories or is it always something new and different um, and unpredictable? Um, not always, but every situation is different. You never run across two things the same, hardly ever. Um, so I wouldn't say they fit in a box because everybody is, everybody's equipment setup is a little bit different. Um, everybody's let me, how do I say this? The ownership that people take of their equipment varies from one end user to another pretty drastically. Some people are very familiar with their equipment. They know how to work on it. They know what it, they know what it does and how it does it, how to fix it if a problem comes up. And some people, uh, they don't take any ownership of their equipment and they really rely on, on us to be that resource. So, um, it's just, it varies customer to customer, person to person within that customer. Cause um, I have a lot of customers will all have multiple contacts that I work with within that, within that company. And, you know, some people uh, are more knowledgeable than others, of course, but uh, so no, I, I would say pretty much every situation has some element of uniqueness to it. and that's what keeps our job interesting. And, uh, I don't ever have a boring day. I can assure you that. (laughs) 
So if a customer is listening to this and was like, man, I really, I wish I could take better ownership of my equipment, how would you recommend they go about doing that? Uh, well, for one, um, you know, reading your manuals, um, which is nobody wants to do that. But when you get a new piece of equipment, make sure you know where your manual is. You keep it re readily available. You kind of look through it. Make sure you get training from whoever you buy that piece of equipment from, whether it's me or, or somebody else. Um, and we always, we always offer training on any piece of equipment that we sell. So, um, you know, taking, taking a little bit of time to educate yourself when you get something new, but also on top of that, don't neglect your equipment. Um, don't just use it until it breaks, you know, make sure you're, keeping up with regular preventative maintenance schedules and and your 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 cleanliness is, is very important in keeping your equipment working good because obviously downtime equals lost revenue i mean nobody has time for their equipment to be down because if their equipment can't work and they can't paint then they're not making money so you need to understand your equipment to keep yourself from having that downtime because while we're available and that's part of uh, what we offer is, is service. If something goes down, if your electrostatic gun goes down or something goes wrong with your booth or your oven um, and you don't know or have some ability to, to get it going back in the right direction and maybe we can't be there that day, you're, you're losing money for every second that you're not painting. So the more you know about your own equipment, the better. Yeah, that makes sense. Are there any common mistakes or user error scenarios that you keep encountering um, that you wish more people knew about? Oh, of course. <laughs> um, one thing that that I kind of get hung up on sometimes is when you go into a place, maybe you've never been there before, and they're having their struggles, and they're explaining to you what their struggles are, and and you ask them, you know, maybe it's glaringly obvious to you why they're having a particular issue. And you say, well, why are you doing it that way? And you hear so often because that's the way we've always done it. And it's just, that's never uh, something you necessarily want to hear because just because you've always done it that way, maybe you've never been doing it right from the beginning. So a lot of people just get stuck in their ways. Um, and it's a matter of trying to explain and show them um, how a different way of doing things or a different process or a different set of equipment can can improve um, their heartaches, but that's kind of a, a vague statement. More specifically, prep. Make sure your part is clean and ready to be painted. Making sure that substrate uh, is going to accept the paint or the powder coat that you're trying to put on it is so important. And a lot of people underestimate that. If the part does, isn't clean and the paint's not going to have anything to bite onto and stick to and it won't hold up it's going to come off eventually it's going to come off prematurely you're going to have failures so uh the paint itself or the powder itself is only as good as what you're trying to stick it to so if you've got a dirty substrate or um you don't have any profile for it to to hold on to or if you're trying to put liquid paint or powder coating over an old coating and you haven't properly prepared the old coating to accept the new coating, um, then your paint's going to fail. So, so the cleaning process or the preparation process, whether it's chemical or mechanical, uh, is probably the most important thing. 
whether it's liquid or powder. I'm so happy that you just said that. That's what that's, we talk. We talk about that so much because I feel like that that's the one thing that gets forgotten. And when whether we're talking about liquid or powder, that everybody forgets that you got to prep it first, and that rarely gets talked about. So, you know, there, there's the worst. <laughs> Go ahead. I was, I was just going to say it's, it's interesting. I'm hearing you kind of say that like people are blaming the equipment for their own lack of surface preparation is that what i'm hearing it happens a lot yeah it does and you know i as a, a salesperson you try not to point fingers you try to try to just help them help them see the light themselves because nobody likes a finger being pointed at them that's just human nature so um and again that a lot of times goes back into the first thing i said is well that's the way we've always done it and it's it's worked or it's kind of worked it's like yeah but it can work better if you do it differently so um but there there's there's several things i mean and another simple thing is especially in powder coating it's so important i'd say two of the most important things in powder coating are a clean substrate or a properly prepped substrate the other thing is having a good clean dry air source going to your powder gun so you're not introducing uh, moisture contaminants or extra humidity um, into the powder itself because that will can that will create um, defects and um, rework so i can't tell you how many times i've been into a place where you can you can open up a, a valve on their airline and it'll spit out a gallon of water you ask them air you know is the air coming off your compressor clean and dry yeah we have a dryer on it um, but, you know, maybe it's 100 or 200 foot away and the airline has uh, built up heat and uh, stuff before it gets to the gun and you don't have a dryer prior to the to the gun. and You get a lot of moisture in your airline. That's going to cause you major heartache. Either so that, that's either that's Matt's another. either Matt's been reading all of our blogs or somehow I <laughs> somehow I like I'm just copying everything that he says without realizing it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. No, it's just because these things are so common. I yeah. mean, these are the big things, and they're the simple things too. If you can, if you're just aware of them, and you and you take steps to correct them, because they're all correctable. Um, especially the clean, dry air. That that's pretty simple. You know, getting a good cleaning process and making sure the part is prepped. Not so simple. I mean that, but it's so important. So important. Um, the only thing i wanted to say out there that i think you left out was ground ground mm -hmm. ground ground yep that's that's the one major thing that i run into whether it's with matt or with any of my other distributors customers can't get the powder where they want it to go it's because they don't have a good ground or they think that the grounding clamp from whosoever unit that they have is that's what they're supposed to ground to the part or to the rack and no that that ground cable from your machine is just to protect your machine that's not what you ground to the part and so what's the for all of our listeners if you were setting up a new system what's the ideal way to get a, a good um, consistent ground from the beginning you will want to get a eight foot copper rod and drill that down into your ground till it's sticking up maybe four or five inches out of the concrete ground and then get some just some jumper cables hook that up from that ground rod to your rack and then take the 
ground wire from your machine and hook that up to the ground rod in the floor. Okay. And that will give you a good ground. If you ever hear that ticking while you're spraying, it's just tick, 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 tick. There's an arc happening. That means you do not have a good ground. That electrostatics that's coming out of your gun is going onto the metal substrate that you're trying to coax and it's jumping onto the rack. There's a little lightning bolt happening somewhere in there. That's telling you, you don't have a good ground. And that's the hardest that's... thing from a process standpoint, at least for us, is to make sure that we always have a good ground because naturally hooks and bars and for us, it's racks and carts that move around um, constantly are getting built up because those get yep. reused and reused and reused. And you have to decide like, you know, when do you want to throw them out? When should they be cleaned? You know, is it economical to just use a hook once and then throw it away? Probably not for smaller job shops. So, like, that balance between making sure that it's, um, we always have a good ground and, like, the cost of making sure that we always have a good ground is, is a balance. I wish I had an answer for you on how many times you could reuse your hooks and stuff, but I don't. Yeah. I mean, I've seen some where they've got six inches of paint on them and they still work and then i've seen some where they look like they're brand new and they're not a good conductor yep i agree with that one other thing just quickly about uh you know some things some some common problems we see oftentimes again this is both true on liquid and powder coating but just making sure the settings on your gun are um ideal or where they're dialed in for what you're doing and i'm not necessarily talking about the voltage settings i'm talking about your powder output settings you don't need a big huge cloud of powder or a big huge cloud of liquid paint just filling up the booth because all you're doing is wasting money at that point i mean the whole point of any kind of painting is to try to maximize the amount of liquid paint or powder that is going from the gun onto the part because everything that's not going on there is wasted money unless you're reclaiming your powder but uh I mean, not everybody reclaims their powder, and if they're not, and you're, you're just blown and going like so many painters like to do, um, you're just wasting money. You're flushing it down the drain. So, you know, bad trans, you know, poor transfer efficiency, um, you know, equates to a lot of lost money. So if a guy just knows well enough that you don't need a big, huge cloud of powder, you should be able to see through the cloud, <laughs> um, then, then the owners, that's going to make the owners of the company happy. If somebody came to you and said, like, hey, I'm looking to do more powder coating or more painting, um, what what's your recommendation in terms of technology? And I'm thinking about, like, powder coating as it continues to advance. We're mainly on metal substrates right now, but there's some people and some technology out there that's starting to allow us to possibly coat other substrates. What's kind of your... Your thoughts on that is if someone is wanting to continue to go down the powder coating path, but maybe doesn't want to keep doing all the same stuff or duplicate exactly what they have going on, what's kind of your thoughts of as powder, powder coating growing more as, as and taking over more uh, market share as liquid kind of starts to shrink out? Well, that would be one where you just want to always work with your local distributor, whoever it is. Um, I know for us at GAMA, we are getting into some of those different processes where they're not just coating steel or metal, um, like uh, the MDF market where you're powder coating wood. You know, 
some people might look at you with like you got three heads on your shoulder. Yes, you can powder coat wood. Um, kind of the same with some of these plastics. We can powder coat like uh, chair legs, like that you would sit on your um, your desk chair. Some of those are powder coated. So it's just knowing the process. I mean, working with your equipment supplier, working with your powder manufacturer to get the, the, the temperatures that you can cure that at. Um, I mean, there's there's just so many markets that we haven't explored yet and we're trying to get into them, but it's just hard getting some of these other industries to allow you to try and change it up. You know, they've been doing this for 30 years and they don't want to change it. Makes sense. That makes any sense. What are your thoughts on that, Matt? Well, I mean, I think it's, uh, I I don't have a whole lot more to add to it than what Jason said. It's just, um, there's not, it's kind of the tip of the iceberg right now. People are, some companies are looking to do powder coating on non-traditional substrates. There's just not very many people doing it that way right now, especially in the United States. I think there's some more of that in uh, abroad, but uh, I mean, I, I don't have a lot of experience with, with that kind of thing. I know it's, it's, it's on people's minds and I'm sure, um, I'm sure it's something that game is R and D people. Um, it's probably high on their priority list, but if I had to take a customer around to a bunch of places and show them those types of applications, I wouldn't have a lot of examples for them. I can tell you that because there's just not, it, it's just, it, it's just being tipped right now. So we're kind of on the very front end of it. Okay. But if I were, so an expert, uh, it would probably, <laughs> it'd probably be beneficial for whoever's going to be leading that charge. Okay. So we're at the hour mark. Um, so we've covered a lot. I like to ask people kind of as their last question of the day, if there's anything that um, you want your customers to know, any advice for people kind of starting off in the industry um, for how to help you help them or, you know, equipment setup or anything like that, just general knowledge advice that you might have for our listeners. I think yeah. I would say oh, is ahead, just to research who your local distributor is, whether it's spray equipment or somebody else, find their phone number, pick them, pick up the phone and call them. They are there to help you, not just sell you equipment. They're going to help you find the right solution and then if it can lead into a sale, then they're really going to want to keep helping you out. I mean, they want to see you grow, and they hope as you grow, that distributor can grow with you. That's my two cents on that. Yeah. Um, you know, something specifically, I guess, I might point to for what I'd like more people to keep a little bit more front of mind is just safety in general. Um, it gets overlooked a lot of times. Some places are very 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 good about safety and it's a top priority others others um it's not as much of a priority in, in my opinion it should always be a very high priority um, not just to protect the company and um you know it, it's stakeholders but also to really to protect the people doing the work the painters because some of these materials and the chemicals they're spraying more so on liquid but even powder i mean you don't that's that's a chemical you don't want it entering your body in any way shape or form whether that means you're breathing it in it's coming into your your eyes or being absorbed to your skin or whatever so having the adequate ppe is so important and it's it's more common today than it used to be i mean some of the 
setups that you used to walk into and some of the stories that I've heard uh, scare me to death. Um, and you don't see as much of that anymore, but there's still definitely room for improvement. And it's, it's really important for employers and painters to take ownership of their own job to protect themselves um, from some of the long-term effects that you can have from exposure to these chemicals. So safety is so important and uh, PPE is, is very important and just being aware of what you're doing and being safe. That's great advice. All right, guys. Awesome. Well, this is a good episode. It's the first time we've had two people interviewing at the same time. I think it went well. I think we played off oh, one good. another. Worked good. So I really pre- I appreciate you guys taking time on Saturday to talk with us and hopefully we get to talk again soon. Yeah, absolutely. It was a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Nice to meet you both. All right. So that was Matt and uh, Jason. Um, that was interesting having two people on at the same time, huh? Yeah, it was. Um, yes. I think anytime that you're, you know, communicating with more than one or two people over Zoom or conference call, it's always a little awkward. But overall, I think, you know, they did a great job and that went way better than I expected. Yeah, me too. And I was, I'm, I was curious. I like the way we ended that. I wanted to, I wanted to just get a little glimpse on what they thought. Like, cause you know, I find it interesting that, you know, almost every powder, either like equipment rep or um, sales rep, they're always talking about how like powder's growing and it's, you know, it's going that way and stuff. But whenever I pose the question, like, well, what's then what's next? You know, what do we need to be working on then? Like if it's growing and then everybody kind of shies back away just a little, you know, it's, but they were talking about, um, some non-metal substrates and things, but um, I'm kind of eager to like get more hands-on information about that. It just doesn't seem like it's available, but I guess maybe I might have to start leading the charge, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but, but I think our question from social media talks about that, doesn't it? It sure does. So Rick Endicott II commented on one of our Facebook posts. And he said, I saw some videos online that some people powder-coated carbon fiber. Is that really possible? And if so, have you ever done it? So we haven't um, really ever done anything that's not metal. There could be a couple things going on there. So there are different curing mechanisms for powder that have existed for a while. So like t- we're using direct heat in an oven. Um 400 degrees typically and you have to get the part up to that temperature for the powder to start to cure or within you know like 350 to 400 let's say ideal is 400 but once you start getting up to probably 350 or so it starts to cure but the actual part is that temperature um there are infrared ovens where that's more of a line of sight curing and so it doesn't it's not relying on heat per se, to cure the powder. It's actually relying on the infrared or IR radiation to cure the powder. And that's like a totally different type of formulated powder because it's a different curing mechanism. Um, And so in those particular cases, you don't have to heat the part up near as much. Um, And so then then that starts to open the the, uh, options for what you can powder coat. But, like, you still, you know, when you start talking about going to, like, 
carbon fiber or plastic or wood there's a lot there's other challenges happening because powder is electrostatics is how it goes on so now if we don't have something that's metal and grounded how do we actually even get the powder to stick and things like that but so is it possible to powder coat carbon fiber i would say yes it's possible um is it likely does it happen a lot you know i don't probably not but um essentially you you wouldn't want to heat that carbon fiber piece up to 400 degrees because your carbon fiber is actually a composite so you the carbon would be fine um but the resin itself would just melt uh and so then you would no longer have a nice whatever piece that was a mirror or hood scoop or whatever car part it was uh but if it was done in an ir oven and for however they got the powder to actually stick to the carbon fiber piece i'm not sure um I believe carbon does have some conductivity, so maybe that's that would work. Um, and is this as long as it didn't get so hot that it deformed in the oven? It probably is possible. So it, um, I would say that that's probably a real video. We just haven't dabbled in that much because it would take. We don't have a infrared oven, um, and I've I've kind of looked into them in the past and at times because another advantage of an infrared oven is let's say you got really, really thick, like five inches thick steel plate, super heavy. Um, obviously when you get something that thick, solid steel, it takes a long time to heat that up in the oven. So it takes a long time to cure the powder out if you can ever actually get it fully cured on that part. But if you have that in an IR oven, you don't actually have to get the part up to temperature. And you're using the right powder that will actually cure uh, in an IR, then you know that's a really good application for that. Which we do really big, heavy, odd things, so that that could be an advantage for us. But then you know you got to try to you know figure out. Well, do you have to put in a whole entire separate oven for that? Can we like retrofit on ours so you can have both? And um, so I've looked into that a couple times, but I've never seen. We don't have enough of one thing that needs ir that we've ever done it and uh there's just so many options there and typically everybody still just goes back to like convection oven which is just full heat that's kind of the default unless you're going real specialized want something real custom and really like tailored to one specific part which we don't do we do all kinds of different parts so I wonder from an energy savings standpoint what that would look like compared to the convection oven we have. You know, I'm not sure. Um, obvious. So with a convection oven, we're running on gas, right? So natural gas that comes in the building, just like if it would come into your house and run your stove or your heater. Um, so we have big burners, so it is using a lot of gas, but they're relatively efficient, the oven itself. I think... I don't know this for sure, but I my assumption is that the IR is probably powered by some sort of electricity. So that probably, I, I always feel like electrical costs are a little bit higher than gas costs just in general. So I think that would go up. I do think that there are some types of IR that are actually are powered by gas. Uh, so that may be a more economical route. It's definitely part of the... Future, but infrared is a 
since it's a radiation, that's like a line of sight type of thing. So in an oven where it's you're just doing all the heat, a convection oven, you know, that it's heating up everywhere in the oven, assuming like the temperature gradient in the oven is even. So it doesn't matter where that part is or how it's orientated in the oven, it's going to get hot and it's going to cure. But when you're talking about IR, since that's uh, a radiation type mechanism, it's, you got the, the radiation is going in waves. It's like it comes from the sun down to us to heat us up. Um, it's the same thing in those ovens. So you can, if you have a, uh, if you only have IR coming from the sides, the top and bottom won't actually cure because it's line of sight. You have to have IR, IR panels all the way around. And then if you've got a part that's like shaped like a C or something right. or a U, like the outside might get it cured but the inside won't because there's no line of sight to get ir in there so that sounds inconvenient yeah which is one of the reasons why when i've looked into it then i'm always like well this is only going to work for like one thick part and then we're never going to turn it on again so that's too expensive to do for one piece and so those are some of the challenge of challenges of coating non-metal things but i think over time solutions are coming out for all that stuff you know and i guess one other yeah, interesting one other possibility on this carbon fiber thing is maybe someone got powder on there but and got it gelled but it didn't fully cure you know what i mean because you yeah. could get it to gel yeah. on there at a pretty low temperature and not mess with the carbon fiber but powder isn't fully cured and it might look decent but it you know it could end gotcha. up just flaking off or something because it's not cured. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I'd love to see the original video he's talking about. Maybe I'll comment back and ask yeah. him to share. But it's just like the, you can find videos out there where people are powder coating wood and powder coating plastic. So like it is, it's not like a hundred percent not doable. It's just not super mainstream where like everybody's doing it right now. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, I think we have quite a few more guests scheduled out coming up. So we should, we're mm -hmm. going to be hitting it hard for the next month or so. Stay tuned. So KazerCast, episode 21. Tune in for 22 next week. Hey, is everything working good for you? You need anything? Anything broke? Anything leaking. Just make sure we stay on track with the yellows and everything will be fine. Little things lead to big things. We stay late tonight, we need to get this job finished up. Overall, I think everybody's doing a great job. Keep up the good work. It's getting hot out, so make sure you're drinking plenty of water. I know this job's been difficult and everybody's getting frustrated. If we can't do it, nobody else can. That's the reason why the job's here, because nobody else could get it figured out. Just keep working at it. Don't get frustrated. We'll keep collecting data, taking good notes, and we'll get it figured out. Does anybody else have anything? Mm -hmm.